0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Growing Up 8 podcast. I'm your host, David Younglet, and today's episode is entitled Nothing Gold Can Stay. The first one leaves for college. Something was ending, and there's not one among us insightful enough to admit or put a vocabulary to it. In the realm of dream, a realm where we enjoyed spending most of our childhood, the cold shoulder of time was checking us into the boards, and we were powerless to avoid it. Douglas was gone. And with him, the compass that guided and directed so much of our childhood adventures, a compass which helped us through the entangled jungle of parental obedience in direct conflict with sibling camaraderie. It was an uncertain time for all of us as Michael passed to dad the letter Doug had penned at some point along the long car trip we all took to deliver him to Louisiana State University. It was a secret missive, safeguarded by Mike, our family sentinel until the agreed-upon time when we could gather as a family, sans one, in the mudroom that served as a porch during our summers on Windy Hill. This love letter was a signal flare, alerting all with the courage to lift their eyes upward that despite our combined protest, the flower of childhood is only here an hour. Rumors of our eventual departure from the frozen North Country that had so isolated yet unified us as a unit weighed heavily in the air as our three, of our three-room, uh, three-floor home at Windy Hill. We knew it was coming, as surely as we knew also that Doug's leaving and our move would be a change for us all. It was purple, and it was his pride and joy, a dual symbol of both his childhood as well as his maturity. Douglas purchased a stripped-down English razor, just like the ones we had seen on ABC Wide World of Sports as they covered the Tour de France. Surely the ages-old ages tour was the epitome of the goal each of us held so dearly in our hearts, the freedom to endlessly ride your bike throughout an ever-changing terrain. The machines these grown children peddled were engineering marvels, far beyond the simple imaginings of us dirt trail riders. We were Schwinn kids, raised with sissy bars to maximize the wheelie duration, Single-gear cranks dependent upon your own will and streamers and baseball cards clacking against your spokes as you pedal to the limit your legs allowed before coalescing to jello. To, our, to, your, to own your own bike outright, not to be gifted or hand-me-downed, but to able to slap your hard-earned cash down on the barrelhead and hold the pink slip in your scarred fingers, that was freedom. Surely that was the kind of spirit that drove the pioneers westward across this great land. The deal was as old as time immemorial to us, and always the same. If it was something we really wanted and couldn't wait for an older sibling to outgrow or a holiday to arrive, we had to come up with half. This was more than fair in our eyes, but it meant discipline and the kind of indentured servitude that we only read about in our history books. To be sure, when one of us was on the path, the others would do what they could to help out. Sometimes that help came in purchasing from your brother a Barry Manalo or an Eagles album to help them increase their cash reserves. It was money well spent, as you knew they would do the same for you one day. Tom and I came across the Raleigh bikes in the Sears catalog, just as we had come across the AM wrist radios. They were unlike any bike we had seen, much less owned. He had his eye on the red and eye on the black one, like the great Stendhal novel, We Pursued Our Quarry. What captivated us about the Raleighs was that they had a three-speed hand-gear lever next to the right hand grip, and the handlebars had real handbrakes attached, not the braking system we knew, which involved jamming your weight backwards on your pedal and fishtailing to a stop. This braking system was civilized and refined, an eastern seaboard marvel to our southern Gulf Coast eyes. Tom and I spent nights talking and dreaming, both questioning and talking ourselves into the pursuit. Were we ready? Were we worthy? Could we handle the upgrade? Did we fully understand that what we were leaving was the off-road and exchanging it for the streets? After all, these were street bikes, finely calibrated and engineered touring bicycles. We had to be sure that we were tall enough Robert Frost said prophetically that nothing gold can stay, and boy, was he ever right. Ours was not a decision to make lightly. This rite of passage demanded we make ourselves ready. A year or so before us, Doug had easily made his transportation decision. And with college looming in his near future, he wanted to make a statement, something of equal match to his disposition. As our eldest sibling, he grasped early the power of symbols, especially how a symbol might be understood by those under his watchful and sober care. Doug was never about frill or ostentation. His favorite poet was Robert Frost, who preferred his verse unadorned and close to the earth. When visiting Doug at college one summer, I found a copy of Confucius, most possibly the Analects, in his bathroom. Doug had always been an avid bathroom reader, Perhaps he, as so many of us had, discovered one of the few cubbies of comfort and solitude available in our busy home, the bathroom, a silent retreat from the hiccups and coughs of eight children. Doug was not much for pretense, and so he declared for us his intention to purchase an English racer complete with ram handlebars, but without the presumed tin gear package, and even without curved handbrakes to fit in symmetry with the curved handlebars. His was to be a stripped-down working-class bicycle, serviceable and unadorned, and it was to be purple. His exclamation mark of independence. We were both awed and stunned. This was truly a man of the people, and he was our man, and we were his people. And so it was that swift-footed time soon found seven confused pairs of eyes staring out from the windows of the 74 Chevy Impala station wagon, watching our leader guide his purple bike across the sidewalk in front of his new home, Hatcher Hall. He gripped it by the front of the ram handlebars with one hand and rolled it into place in one of the myriad of bike racks outside the entry to the dorm. As we pulled away and found a route to the interstate, I couldn't help but feel like a world that was comfortable and certain was shedding its skin and taking a new and unclear form. Our dawn was descending downward, and our number had lessened by one.